0: Councillor Walters on The Room Where It half Pennies. This week, Michael Walters is here to give us a behind-the-scenes
1: look at his two terms on council. Plus, we'll find out all about the run that never was and what's next for the heir apparent. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, speaking Municipally. municipally.
0: Welcome back to Speak Municipally, episode 101. Uh, we are recording this segment after our interview with Michael Walters, and it's long, so I'm not going to waste any time getting into the rapid fire. Jason Kenney condemned a, quote, small number of kooks who Casey Maddu called, quote, sad losers after there was a rally which could be called by someone who is trying very hard to avoid using two specific words, a paste-colored puritanism. In an open letter to Jason Kenney, the group, which clashed with anti-racists in Edmonton on Tuesday night, told the premier, quote,
1: We hear your message loud and clear. We'll stand back and stand by. Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Dina Hinshaw congratulated the NHL on a successful playoffs with a confirmed COVID-19 count equal to the number of times the Oilers have taken home the Stanley Cup in the past two decades. The top doc congratulated the NHL on an effective management of the pandemic while the playoffs were ongoing, specifically commending the NHL's choice of Edmonton for the bubble, saying, quote, Other cities around their landmark downtown arena, they might have arts, culture or a thriving city life. Thankfully, Edmonton has just what was needed to space out well, an abundance of gravel parking lots.
0: 6.30 Ched morning host Ryan Jesperson confirmed this week that he was fired from the chorus-owned radio station, though he didn't delve into the specifics of how Jason Kenny and his council meat puppet Mike Nickel orchestrated crocodile tears to station sponsors in order to push him out. We reached out to the former radio host for comment, but were unable to reach him. His cell phone was out of service as he stood confusedly at the base of Marmot Basin Chairlift in Jasper, wondering where all the powder was because he saw snowflakes everywhere in Edmonton.
1: Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation, which acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sport and recreation. You can learn all about that at ecfoundation.org. And a quick plug we are uh, in the middle of Yegg Podfest, the first podcasting festival, uh, taking place entirely online for free. And uh, I'm on a panel on Saturday, talking about millennials, which was the 2020 vital topic that the Community Foundation looked at. So if you want to hear me talk about how I'm just barely a millennial, it's at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, October 3rd, and you can sign up and uh, learn more at yegpodfest.ca. Right off the top of the show, we've got a pretty exciting guest to welcome on. Joining us today is Councillor Michael Walters, Ward 10 City Councillor, who announced at the end of August that he is not going to run for re-election in next year's municipal election. So we're curious to ask him uh, all about that decision and, of course, about his two terms on council, some of the highlights, some of the struggles or challenges, and I'm sure we'll get into some conversation about what's coming up uh, next October. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I think right off the top, we just have to get
0: to the big question. When did the decision, the big one, happen? And what were your primary justifications for deciding, yeah, I'm not going to throw my hat in the mayoral or the councillor ring?
2: So I think the decision to run only two terms for council was with had been made when I first ran for council. Generally, noting that, you know, you're always open to Things changing, but that was kind of my outlook as I would do two terms and then see what opportunities there would be to run for mayor or uh, go do something else. So I didn't ultimately deviate from the decision to only serve two terms, and then, of course, gave serious consideration to uh, running for mayor. And and when it came down to it, uh, you know, I had to look at what kind of lifestyle that was, the demands of that, and where my family was at this period of time. And it became a fairly easy decision actually to not put my family on the back burner for, you know, probably eight years. You know, I think most mayors will at least get that if I was, if I had run and the opening was there and I had won, you know, I think that's kind of what you plan for. And it just wasn't the right time. So kind of a family first decision. I I said, when I announced, it sounds always like a cliche when, you know, elected officials uh, make that call, but cliche or not, it's, uh, was a big deal for me.
0: You did give a hint of politics in that answer right there. And that was you did do some calculus on could I run for mayor and what might that look like? Do you think if you decided to run for mayor, there's room for you to win a mayoral election? Or was that a factor that the field didn't look optimal for mayoral run? No,
2: it was it was very plausible that I would win. Not certain. I would never suggest it would be certain or as certain people You know, would refer to me as the heir apparent. I was kind of cringed at that because there is no such thing as that. It was possible that I would I would win in this field, um, and in this time. Uh, So it wasn't wasn't about calculation. It was kind of I was more afraid I would win, and and what it would do to my life and my family right now. And you know, my family's been really great and supportive. And I know lots of people make these kinds of sacrifices to serve and you know, elected office and higher office, uh, and it's challenging for their families. And I just, it was a personal decision, right? I don't begrudge people who do it while their families are still young and and at home. Uh, and I certainly don't begrudge people who decide to step away for a while.
1: And you've done it, right? Your kids largely have grown up with, with you on city council. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it hasn't been, you know, it's been okay. I think city council job is a very demanding job. If you, if you're an engaged counselor and If you're, you know, engaged in your ward and engaged in like I was in a lot of the regional work uh, at EMRB and and other initiatives that I spent a lot of time on, you know, working on housing and, you know, the River Valley Alliance and all kinds of things that added extra evenings to our schedules. So, yeah, I kind of you miss you miss some stuff for sure. And and then when you're the mayor, it just gets amplified dramatically in terms of time pressures and stress and and it just wasn't the right time.
0: Right. So take us through that briefly. You mentioned the demands of the counselorship. A lot of our listeners might have been influenced by Twitter, which could convince you that counselors do absolutely nothing all day. What does a typical day look like for you? What's your workload as a counselor?
2: So you kind of have three, like three general areas that you work on. Of course, you have your council duties, which is all the council meetings, uh, public hearings, committee work, uh, which is two levels of committee. You do the Standing policy committees, community services, you know, um, uh, executive and urban planning. And then you have the longer term policy stuff that you do for, for your whole time on council. Like from, in my case, was is utility committee. So that's all your basic council duty stuff, which, you know, this has been a very ambitious council. So there's been a lot of a lot of work. I think we saw a chart or a graph showing the hours we spent in council and committee meetings over the last 10 years. And it's dramatically increased uh, in in uh, in the last few years, for sure. So you have that, then you have your ward. So you got 21 neighborhoods. You know, I represent, as you both know, a South Side ward that's generally a very affluent, very educated, and and very engaged. So my community leagues are all very active folks, and there's a lot going on. And then you have your initiative work. Uh, so in my case, you know, supporting the mayor on the EMRB, the Edmonton Metro Regional Board, all the regional transit work I've done, the housing initiative, the climate and energy transition initiative uh and then there's the fourth thing which is also very demanding which is just all the events that you're you know you're asked to be at either as a counselor or on behalf of the mayor uh, because he of course can't be everywhere all the time so it's a very demanding job if you do it fully in all of those four areas it's you know 60 hours a week plus for sure Uh, and you give your Sundays away because that's when you do all your reading. So I used to get up, try to get up around 5.30 on Sunday morning so I could get a lot of reading done before my kids were really ready to do stuff on Sunday afternoons. Uh, So, yeah, it's not – I can say now that I think counselors are underpaid. You know, when you're seeking re-election, no one ever wants to say that, but I think, you know, you're asking people to juggle a lot, stay engaged in a lot of very sophisticated and complex information – Often it's integrated and you have to have a real strategic sense. And you learn that as you go along. Uh, that's it. In, a, in a city of a million people, you got 80 to 100,000 people in your ward. It's it's a big job for sure.
1: So take us back to April 2013 when you launched your campaign. Uh, remember the blue, green, and yellow balloons? You, you just told us that you had basically decided at that point that you were going to do two terms and that was that was the plan while not closing yourself off to other opportunities is that because you knew about the demands of the job i know you were very involved um, around that time prior to uh, to that election with you know land in the northeast and you spent a lot of time at city hall already i think Uh, or or was there some other factor that made you think nope two terms is what i'm going to shoot for
2: well i kind of believe in refresh leadership as a philosophy and and my perspective on leadership development is it's good to turn over and and provide opportunities for other people and you lead and then you mentor and support other people to to take your place I also know about myself that I'm I kind of changed roles and did something different every five years through most of my career you know I kind of work broadly in community development and community organizing work um Both from a not-for-profit and a for-profit perspective, and and I I kind of do get a little restless after five years, so I I knew you know that about myself. And plus, I also we were also when I got elected, uh, that was the first time we had four-year terms. We shifted uh, from three to four at that point. So I kind of looked ahead, and and you know, it wasn't really steadfast. I I kind of thought that would be the case, and was certainly open to a third term, Uh, but that's the decision I made is just to stick with two and, and then really give the mayor's race uh, some consideration and try to understand what that would mean for me personally, whether I was the right guy for the city, whether it was the right thing for my family, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, as as is now well known, I've concluded what I concluded.
0: You've now got two terms under your belt approximately. You've got a year left on the last term, uh, though if the start of it is any indication. There won't be much getting done in this last few months. Um, what's your crowning achievement? What do you think when you eventually retire into the private sector and make six times your salary will be your crowning achievement?
2: I'm grateful for your confidence in me, Troy. It's, it's inspiring and I'll <laughs> tuck it away when I feel down. I think Troy believes in me. Uh, so I don't actually agree that not a lot's going to get done. I think there can be you know certainly this is a challenging time with with covid and we're going to have way really less money and and the province is is struggling mightily financially and we're going to have to deal with much less from them in terms of infrastructure dollars and and grants and those kinds of things uh likely uh but you know i look at If I just start from the ward out, you know, a lot of the stuff that I ran on in the first term was really kind of community ward focused. And, you know, I kind of go back and look over my campaign brochures from 2013. And it was about, you know, it was about Petroleum Mall and this, which is really a symbol, it's an actual mall, but it was a symbol of kind of neglect and lack of investment in mature neighborhoods and really trying to tackle that. Uh, Century Park was, was dormant, essentially, as a development transit oriented oriented development at the time and i recognized that their their land use plan which is sort of built around a lake was a bit absurd and of a fairy tale and george slussell the procure developer also realized that and so i was really willing to work with him to sort of re, re-plan that and get that development started again um one of my favorite topics as a municipal uh, politician, beyond of course uh, how we deal with dog poop, is our utility and drainage. And I was always befuddled me that, you know, we had this essentially an envi- a municipally owned environmental solutions company in Epcor uh, that you know ran our water uh, treatment and our wastewater uh, and our water lines. And I think that combined with the fact that so many neighborhoods in my ward were flooding. Uh, repeatedly, I think about Park Allen and Lundrum and Asthma Gardens and Greenfield and Duggan. These you know really nice neighborhoods that you know every few years we're having these major flood events and people's basements were being ruined. We didn't really have a sophisticated strategy around protecting people's homes. Uh, so I came in with a bit of a passion for you know I wanted to get on the utility committee. I wanted to uh, really up our game around flood mitigation, and then I kind of. Got a bit of a, uh, a crush on this cat named Dr. Blair Feltmate, who's at university, the University of Waterloo, the Climate Change Adaptation Center um, through Intact Insurance, uh, who did a rating of the city's flood preparation uh, and, and resiliency. And we got, I think it was a D. It might have been a C minus, but it was not a good grade. Uh, and so once the drainage tra- transfer was complete with APCOR, we really got after this. Flood prevention work and a stormwater strategy that would start to position our neighborhoods uh to be a lot safer in extreme weather events and and so that's super nerdy municipal political stuff that i was really proud that we made some real progress on and of course got a very excellent plan that they're currently implementing and dry ponds are being built and we're underway and the The original city estimate on doing something like that was up to up close to four billion dollars, and Evcor came in with a full plan at one point two billion. This is over like a fifty year period of time, uh, so I think you know that's a pretty basic infrastructure, uh, everything below the ground that nobody really sees. Uh, bit of work that I'm pretty proud to have played a, a role uh, being a champion of. Uh, so I think about you know some of that ward stuff. Uh, the the flooding stuff was certainly started out as a ward issue, but of course you you know that this affects people all, all across the city. Uh, and I'm by the end of the term, I'm really uh, hopeful that you know we're going to have our transit system uh, regionalized, which was is no small feat uh, when you have a region that generally you know 13 municipalities. There was a lot of you know conflict and. What we call playing for keeps like everybody was really just concerned about their own municipality at the expense of a, a more integrated sophisticated region uh we're very close to having a transit system stood up in early 2022 and all the groundwork for that has been laid and we're just now we're waiting for the provincial government to give us the go-ahead on a commission which has to be a a regulation and their on their books uh and mac you mentioned the northeast farmland where i kind of got. You know, that's not where I got started, but that's where I got started in, in real land use advocacy and yeah. smarter urban planning and, and building a more dense city that actually saw its agricultural assets on its edges as as having value for more than just its real estate potential, but that actually c- contribute to economic diversification and provide a, a greater quality of life for people by just having that beautiful land optimized through you know local farms and greenhouses and fruits and vegetables and all those great things uh and also contribute uh significantly to uh uh an economic diverse a more uh, just a more diverse economy because it's not it's not a small business it's a very has the potential to be a very large part of our local and regional gdp and yeah so from that work 10 years ago i've you know been sitting on the on the task force the regional task force It's called the Regional Agricultural Master Plan to look at, you know, how do we, in the midst of our new growth plan, um, which I could spend way too much time talking about, but the long and short of that is we plan denser neighborhoods, no matter where they are in the core or in the suburbs over the next 40 years, we'll save 250 uh, quarter sections of land by just building more densely. And so then what do you do with that land? How do you preserve it? Which of it's the best land? How do you maximize its use for agriculture as opposed to just building cul-de-sacs on farmers' fields? Right. So we're we're pretty close on some of that stuff, and that's why I think this last year for me, still, I'm not just going to announce I'm I'm not running again and then you know fade away. I still have a lot of important work that means a lot to me to to finish up before next October.
0: You brought up the RTSC, so we don't have to. That uh, you were selling as a a selling point. Uh, I've been skeptical of the RTSC in the past. I noticed that you said there were 13 municipalities. I don't know that 13 municipalities are on the submission to the province, though. No,
2: there's eight. I said there was 13 municipalities in the region, in the EMRB, that have struggled in the past to work together. So...
0: So five yeah. of those seem to have uh, declined Edmonton's kind offer of regional collaboration here. So, firstly,
2: you should be skeptical of everything. It's an excellent disposition to live life with because then you never get duped. And I was—I'm always remarkably skeptical of large kind of government-driven projects where you're really kind of upending, you know, people's habits that they've had for, you know, frankly, decades. But it's kind of it's kind of absurd if you think about it to have in this geographic region where we share so much of our economy and so much of our culture essentially nine separate transit systems with nine separate capital plans and nine separate administrations. So the thing I was more skeptical about uh, was how how that could really sustain itself over the long run, and 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 so. Regionalism generally is about trying to find service efficiencies that municipalities won't be able to establish on their own. Uh, so St. Albert was really the initial instigator of this question, uh, even when then-Councillor Iveson served on the Capital Region Board Transit Committee. And we went through study after study after study, and we went got to a process where all 13 municipalities agreed to go through uh, the business case to see if it would work. The four rural communities have opted out. And, you know, you heard in the media my dissatisfaction with Strathcona County's reasons. I don't need to regurgitate those. Uh, And the other counties decided to step away as well for each their own reasons, both Sturgeon and Parkland. However, there's sort of a second tier of participation that they're considering, meaning that they will like to join once they have sort of a certain, you know, like for for Parkland County's case, it's Atchison. It's transit to Atchison. They know that they're losing certain investment because there's not public transit.
0: Moving away from the RTSC, um, you made a bit of councillor history for your first time uh, last December when you voted no against the budget. Um, I was hoping you'd give us some insight on that because you have never voted no against the budget, but you did last December. What was your thought process there?
2: So there's a number of things. I had started to signal concern about tax increases the year during the four-year operating. So when we did the big budget in in 2018, hearing more and more from not just the you know larger business community that composed an organization like Prosperity Edmonton. We know you know we heard from those folks about you know their commercial, you know challenges with commercial properties and industrial properties, and and the effect that it was having on on jobs. And, and just to go back a little further, back in twenty fifteen, I made a motion looking at trying to get get a sense of how property tax and city processes were impacting investment decisions into Edmonton. So it was kind of a business climate analysis that I asked for, and at that time. Uh, the report we got back from the then EDC was uh, it has some impact you know we're kind of middle of the pack as far as other Canadian municipalities in terms of you know the municipal contributors to the cost drivers for business and uh, nothing fatal but we should probably watch out although what they did note is the the biggest thing that is the most important contributor to investment success is our is our investment in education provincially so it's like Something I'm 100% behind, but from a municipal perspective, that was it was nothing fatal. But kind of keep an eye uh, as we went up to the 2018 four-year budget. I started to hear more and more, not from just the prosperity Edmonton folks, uh, who I you know gave serious consideration to their concerns because they were showing me the year over year over year increases that they were struggling with. Uh, but it was it was really the the mom and pop, you know, the you know I'm not saying these particular people. I'm not going to out whoever talked to me, but you know, the, in my ward, you know, the Mimi's pubs and the Italian centers and the, and the square one cafes and the, and the lemongrass restaurants, like these places that actually create the vibrancy in our neighborhoods that I actually was fighting for in my first term on council. When I would talk about things like petroleum mall and investment into mature neighborhoods, these very businesses were the ones that were coming to me, these kinds of folks and saying, you know, cumulative effect of, Cost of government is really starting to add up. Many of these people were NDP voters, right? Not, not you know, they're not just these sort of "enterprising," you know, "don't tax us ever" kinds of conservatives. These are very progressive citizens that were starting to raise issues and concerns about about tax increases. And if you think back, the Stephen Mandel years actually saw the highest tax increases because we came off the Bill Smith years, which saw no tax increases. And we've sang this song where. You know, we had to do a lot of infrastructure catch up, which everybody knows is true. And I'm not going to uh, belabor that point. And then the Ibison years uh, have essentially, you know, there's still tax increases, but they generally been around inflation plus population growth kind of things still. But over the 20 year period, you could see that things were starting to really kind of grow for folks uh, on their on their bills. And they're starting to get really concerned. So I'd hear more and more and more. And and it was impossible for me. It was impossible to ignore. Uh, And then being there for uh, six years, five years at that point, you know, having been through a term, and you know, you see a lot of folks that I wonder, you know, what is what is this person doing? Like, what is? Do we need to do things this way? Do we have too many people here? So I started asking questions about comparable, like, what are the benchmarks to know if a city has the right number of staff? Too many? Too few? You know, do you look at apples-to-apples apples kinds of service provision? And we, my staff did that, and I detailed that in this pain for Edmonton blog series that I'm sure you both read every word of, five-part. Uh, and we discovered that we have uh, quite a bit more FTEs per capita than most
0: other major cities. So we should cut 2,000 of them.
2: Well, it was a provocation, Troy, <laughs> that we – why – So I never said we should cut 2,000 of them. I said, why do we have what adds up to 2,000 more employees than we should have if we were to take the average of what other municipalities have, comparing apples to apples services. And we always seem to forget, back to my uh, love for utilities, is that we also increase utility rates, the waste rate filing, the EPCOR rates through, through the rate filing exercise. It's not just the tax levy that... Is is uh, common at at businesses and property owners from the city. It's the utility as well, and so I was just. It was really a stand that I didn't feel satisfied that we'd done due diligence on whether the size of our government is appropriate. I didn't think we'd heard uh, or were listening closely enough to the small business local business community, and I think we are in a time when our government, both provincially and, and municipally, is kind of built around a hundred dollar barrel of oil. And we don't have that anymore. And we have to be realistic. And I think it's actually the, the Achilles heel of progressives is to be smug about finances and think that, you know, it's okay just to continue to raise taxes every year, year over year over year over years, because we can justify all this great stuff we're doing. I think government does get too big for its bridges and thinks that it's the leader of all things. And we spend money according to that philosophy. And it's gonna it's gonna bite us one day. And that's why I believe what I believe is that we can spend less. We can we don't need as many people as we have. And we, we're gonna have to face that even before COVID. COVID makes us face it whether we like it or not.
0: Well, thankfully, um, for the size of Edmonton's municipal government, Casey Madu was appointed municipal affairs minister and implemented cuts across the board and a very paternalistic attitude. I'm assuming you're distraught about his removal as municipal affairs minister, uh, based on what you said. Well, sometimes,
2: sometimes we get angry at people. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't ever approve of non-collaborative. I prefer collaborative people that really seek to understand the complexities of the people that they are appointed to oversee so to speak but i think we uh, progressives were mad at him in part because we know that he was kind of right uh not not defending his approach or his demeanor uh or what i felt were you know often misinformed statements and editorials who were often very hyperbolic like i've been i've told him how i feel <laughs> personally i i don't think that was very effective but i also don't disagree with the sentiment that municipalities and and the provincial government and the federal government all of them are designed around a, a cost structure and a, a price of a barrel of an oil where we thought we could just grow and grow and spend and spend and we don't have that circumstance anymore so you know i'm happy to talk about you know i talk about this in the blog series how do you finance cities like why don't we have a sales tax that's harmonized, that allows us to, that then is an offset to income tax, right? So it's kind of neutral, but it allows m- much greater flexibility for the province to work with municipalities. Why don't we regionalize? Why isn't the province a leader in regionalizing services that are costing way more money than they should be? You know, we have nine transit systems. Why aren't we, why isn't the province actively engaged in regionalizing all kinds of services, waste, transit, um, all the policing, all those kinds of things. Uh why aren't they investing significantly in affordable housing? Not only do you create, you know, you think about the investment they made in Twiliker Drive and eight hundred jobs, well to build the five five thousand of the units of affordable housing that are part of our initial ask, not not the nine hundred permanent supportive housing, but the whole five thousand permits supportive plus some rent like deep subsidy rental for people who are really struggling 5,000 housing units is 3,200 jobs. So those, and plus the money you save from policing, there's all kinds of ways uh, for the province to help municipalities save money that they're not engaging in. And uh, so I think it's a both. And I think we could spend less, we could tax less, uh, but they could work with us to help us do things a lot more smart, uh, a lot smarter than, than we're presently allowed to.
1: Well, I agree with that, and I think that's true. I have to ask you about the police. It's the single largest budget item for the city. We're not cutting that. We're cutting the increase. Couldn't the city do more there if we're really concerned about how much things cost?
2: Yeah, we could. We can cut any any area of budget, right? So, we, well, uh, why don't you
1: think council did anything more over the summer than a slight decrease to the increase? Well, I think
2: that. So I voted for the larger increase, uh, because I see, you know, I'm going to comment on this. It's a funny time. Uh, if you're right now, if you don't want to abolish the police, uh, in Edmonton, uh, or anywhere you're, you know, considered something like a racist or a white supremacist. Uh, if you don't want to put a you Justin Trudeau bumper sticker on your truck, uh, you're considered a Marxist and unalbertant. This is the political climate that we exist in. So the ability to nu- have nuanced conversations about the value of the police and at the same time as saying, well, there's certain things that you shouldn't do and it's a waste of money for police officers to do that, uh, comes off as a as a slight to the police so we you know i all get so i would get emails uh, after the decision to take 11 million dollars out of the budget over two years as having defunded the police essentially and people were violently going to remove me from my their doorstep if i knocked on their door in the next election to i would get emails from people calling me a white supremacist and a racist because i didn't go far enough right and And so I think the answer is in uh, our chief and our commission and our council and the right members of our community from the BIPOC community who are sophisticated enough to really reallocate the right money to the right things for the right reasons in a way that actually gets us to a place where people are not Uh, targeted because of the color of their skin or their sexuality or who they are uh, by certain police officers who may be more prone to do that Uh, and where community feels and those members of those communities feel really empowered to not just speak up against the police or the police commission or council but to take positions of power and inside of those organizations so you know it's always the burden's always on the people who are elected now and i and I don't think we were going to make anybody happy. Uh, but I fundamentally believe that a certain amount of police budget, I don't know exactly what the right percentage is. It feels arbitrary for me at the moment to kind of guess, but a certain amount of money that we spend on policing today should be spent in other areas and particularly housing. Uh, but then our municipal affairs minister has moved. Uh, Mr. Medu has moved from municipal affairs to solicitor general Injustice and justice and Stated very clearly that uh, Edmonton and Calgary best not do that. Um, so you know, this is the challenge that we have with the municipal-provincial partnership that I think really needs to be addressed somehow, some way, and because we're obsequious, we we are we don't have levers to to do a lot of the things. Zooming out again away from policing to regionalism to housing to all those things that we don't have the levers to do things the way that they should be done on our own without provincial leadership.
0: So that was a very effective series of words at not answering the question. So we'll reframe the question a little bit tighter here because... If you're afraid of nuance,
2: Troy, I don't know how to help you. Like, it's not an easy question to answer. Like, why, why, why can't I take more money out of the police? How much? Tell me. How much more... Should we take and what should we give it to and who decides and how do we know it's going to work?
0: What you've suggested just moments ago was that there is some amount that you don't know, because again, nuance that could be reallocated from police to other organizations. And yet at budget this year, you voted to give the police a raise. We're asking what about the police? What compelled what did the chief say that compelled you that the police need an increase this year?
2: So here's the nuance, like it or not, I guess. The uh, the history of police budgets were they asked for whatever they asked for and we'd give them whatever they asked for. Uh, Mayor Iveson, a few years ago, created the police funding formula in policy that said you get basically inflation plus population plus, minus an efficiency factor. So at least it limited the increases and was predictable funding. Uh, and so, yeah, so that's the interesting thing right is it was still an if they still get an increase they get less of an increase because of the public hearings and the motions that were made and so we will wait and see what the community well-being task force comes back with you know i wonder like i'm hopeful that they can they can be effective in describing what reallocations uh would be valuable and where that money would go and if there's an excellent case there well, I'm on council, I'm happy to reallocate money to a place that actually makes the city safer and, and makes everybody safer. But right now, like we're, let's pin the tail on the, on the police budget.
0: Well, let's, let's pin the tail precisely. Let's keep, keep at it. Because again, the question is you detailed that there's the police funding formula, which we agree, but we've seen this summer that the police funding formula can be altered because it was altered. And the choice was to alter it slightly and give the police a raise. I'm just asking, what was the convincing factor after there was multiple days of public hearing and a lot of concerned community participants detailing their trauma and their struggles? What about the police convinced you that they still needed a raise that year? Because council has shown that they are willing to alter the funding formula. So they did alter it. Why that amount?
2: Well, like I said, it was it was arbitrary and and any other amount would also be arbitrary at this point in time. So if we're going to have a serious mature conversation about reallocating money that in every single city, I think from my research and understanding is that police departments generally get what police departments generally ask for. Uh, if we're going to have, and, and I actually have a lot of faith in our chief. I think he was hired to look at ways to stop just throwing good you know good money after bad you know in all kinds of areas you know we have he, he would just he'll show you this amazing powerpoint if you ever have you should have him on your podcast and get him to talk about you know how the same people are accessing different parts of the system over and over and over again in their lives and and he talks about a vulnerable person strategy as opposed to all these different and poverty strategies so housing strategies mental health strategies uh, children in distress strategies, you know, violent, you know, violent crime strategies. A lot of this stuff overlaps. Uh, so show me some precision on how much money we should take out. Cause you're not, and I don't think you can offer me any precision. So you're saying we didn't, we're still giving them a raise. What about the police's argument convinced me to give them a raise. So there was no argument that convinced me that they should, we should take any more money out of their budget now. Cause where's it going to go? And, and frankly, I could. the only answer I have to that is it could go to housing. We could do that. That makes sense to me. But then we're into this jurisdictional problem where the more we take on uh, with our property tax base, when it's pr- provincial jurisdiction, that's the money we're never going to get from the province, ever. Even if it's a new Democrat government one day again, or a Alberta party government, or the UCP stays in forever. That's the challenge is where is it going to go and what's it going to be used for? And so it may not be a sufficient answer or a sufficient decision of mine back uh, last summer uh, for, for you folks. But ultimately, I need to see where is it going to be reallocated to? And I'll consider it.
1: So d- just to, just to close on that, then, do you think we will end up in a place where council doesn't just accept whatever the police bring forward and that we can have? A more nuanced, grown-up conversation about future budgets.
2: Yeah, I, I uh, severely hope so. And and look at, I, I also don't buy into the abolish the police or defund them completely argument. Uh, I you know I I have appreciate the history that a lot of the speakers at that public hearing brought to us. Yeah, uh, about the police and and the origins of them, but they are a firmly established institution in our modern society. And to make them more effective and support them in, in uh community service is what I'm interested in doing. And not putting them as individuals in difficult positions that we shouldn't put them in, anyways. We ask them to do way too much. But they the challenge with police organizations is they have to they have to kind of meet us halfway on that. And I think that's where that's what I like so much about our chief, is if you don't believe you should be doing everything that's asked of you. We have to find other people to do those things. And then we have to find money from somewhere to pay those other people to do those things. And obviously that's a reallocation question. Municipalities should have the ability to smartly and intelligently right size their budgets into areas that like, you know, housing and mental health and and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things in support of higher orders of government who have all the financial capacity or way more financial capacity than we do to deal with those challenges
0: you had mentioned just moments ago that we don't know who's going to be forming government. It could be an NDP government. It could be a UCP government. It could be an Alberta Party government. And I don't think anyone expects the Alberta Party to form government. So are we to read into that as your reactivation in Alberta Party politics? Is that a future plan for you?
2: I think that in five, seven years. So, for, so firstly, I'm going to stay very engaged in municipal politics, helping people run get elected uh uh, to the next council uh i don't know who's running for mayor but if there's somebody i really like uh that i would support i'll do that uh i think that uh down the road provincial politics if i came back to politics that's where i'd come back to just because so many of the issues that i care most about and have been so frustrated by in my time on council are really largely driven by uh the legislature and the and the provincial government so I could probably, like I was pretty certain I would only run two terms. I'm also pretty certain I won't come back to municipal politics. And if I go back to politics, it'll be at the provincial level. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud centrist. You know, I, I put on my uh, Twitter handle the other day that my new cause is keeping common ground off, getting common ground off the endangered species list. I don't like this political climate where... Everybody automatically thinks the worst of everything, everyone, because of one thing they might have said on one day. Uh, I think it's, I think it's nasty. I think there's a lot of angry people that deserve to be angry. And there's a lot of injustice underneath that anger that we have to uh, struggle against and deal with. But there's a lot of people who are angry just because they want to be angry. And I think the political space is, is, I don't like the way the New Democrats and the UCP behave, treat each other. Uh, there's not a real policy debate. They're so far apart. Uh, I think there's room for ultimately once, and I don't know how long that's going to last, but one day, hopefully there's room for a more moderate kind of voice in the legislature or either of those parties can moderate. I'd be happy for that to happen too.
0: I wasn't going to bring it up, but you brought up the Twitter of it all. And I had the question here. And as novel as it is to be a white centrist guy on Twitter preaching civility, there's been a apparently intentional motive to preach both sideism, And it manifested quite recently in some pretty, pretty big tweets. I'm thinking of specifically the Brute's one where uh, she... Said Trump won the climate change debate, and you jumped in to defend, hey, let's play both sides here. What's the thought process there? I I do want to understand why you would jump into something about a different election with Trump, who's objectively bad. We can all agree on that on the podcast, and defend a take. Upping Trump—that doesn't seem like a centrist. Let's have a nuanced discussion. It seems almost antagonistic to me. I don't necessarily understand where your both sides is coming from here.
2: Well, you know, there's as a human being, I, I sometimes do things for emotional reasons or because I just, or or maybe I make mistakes. Um, but that that's interesting that you bring that up. So every tweet, you know, I'm I'm a hypocrite. I I've been nasty on Twitter myself. I don't like that. You know, sometimes you feel like after a day on Twitter, it's kind of like out after you've been out drinking all night, you know, it seems fun at the time, but the next day it feels really gross. Uh, that's the challenge of social media. I'm prone to to mistakes. Uh, but you know, I also, that, that particular one, I just felt like she was being mislabeled as, you know, a Trump supporter or supporting you know his particular views on race simply because she took a shot at joe biden and I, you know i know erica i don't agree with her on much actually but i don't think she's a she's a bad person sometimes i wish i would just stay off twitter
1: <laughs> don't we all yeah uh counselor i want to say thank you for answering all of our questions i know you said earlier that you are going to help get people elected you're going to stay engaged. You're not done yet. You still got a year to go, but, but knowing that your the end is in sight, at least, you know, when it's, when it will end by your choice, what advice would you have to the next counselor that comes into your ward or anybody who's running for council?
2: So I, I, you know, let me, let me close with drainage, Mac. Uh, I, I have people who come to me who seek my advice on running already. People who wanna run in my I'm because my word split into two. Yeah. Two uh Ipikoka, and papa stale the names of the two words, that the former word 10. And uh so i talked to a number of people in both of those words and in some other words, and I, I just ask people that they uh make sure that they try and stay kind of moderated, right? Like I I use the Epcord. Uh, or the drainage transfer to epcor i ask people what, what would you have done with that what would your decision have been right and i kind of like people who say i don't know because you know tell me about that and they're curious about both sides of the argument and uh versus a couple of people who said i never would i never would have transferred that that should stay in the city that's a un- those are union jobs etc cetera, et cetera. right and it's just like they have this sort of strident or someone say, "Oh." Hundred percent. It's better for business to do it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't like. That's what I love about municipal politics. In a way, is that you can comment issues very logically and very sensibly. And there's, there's, pro, you know, pro labor aspects to having certain things in the city. Although, it, of course, unionized too. So it's a bad example. But you know, you know what I'm saying is that there's yeah. an openness to learning and understanding and working pe- with people who have different perspectives. That's that's what I mean when I say like the whole conversation about that tweet. That's just you know all bad human nature all the way around. My contribution is noted in that. But like common ground is really like absolutely being open-minded to people who have different perspectives and thinking that they can actually influence you. And this is what the political power essentially is, is that you're willing to influence others and be influenced by others. That's the vulnerability of it, right? And if you're so strident and you know everything already, I don't think you're going to be a very good counselor. And I wouldn't support you for whatever that's worth.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good spot to wrap it up. Thanks
1: so much for joining us, Michael. Uh, we're happy to have you. And thank you for your service on council too. I yeah. mean, uh, as we noted at the beginning, it's a, it's a difficult job and good on you for sticking to your original plan. And, and thank you for giving that many years of your family life to, uh, to Edmontonians.
2: Have a great night.
0: See you around. Prosperity Edmonton may tell you about council's budget going up and up and up, but the only way you can find that stuff out is with accountants. It may be cliche to say by now, but we are living in unprecedented times, and that's why you should consider hiring a chartered professional accountant, also known as a CPA, to help guide you through this pandemic and jumpstart your recovery. With a CPA on your team, you can be confident that you'll find the best solutions to even your biggest business problems. CPAs are trained to dig in and truly understand how an organization operates, where it's already excelling, and how it can be better. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, you can follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And you can also visit cpaalberta.ca to find out more. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. I'm Michael. And we're Speaking in